Good morning. I think it's on. Good morning. There you go. There you go. This is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, one in Christ. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're going to do a lightning round. Um, meet someone that you have 90 seconds, and then I'm going to put a, pull you back. Ready? Go. Meet someone around you. Tell them how you got here. Thirty seconds, thirty seconds. All right, there you go. We uh, have made it somewhat of a custom here that at the beginning of every calendar year, we revisit and talk through uh, the sort of core essentials of who we are as a church. And so we've talked through uh, this funny little name we have of Jacob's Well a couple weeks ago, our vision, Breaking Barriers to Encounter Jesus Together. And now we've started talking through uh, these things called core identities, which are represented up here by these icons, first one being gospel Centered. And what we said is that the gospel is this word that essentially means good news. And it's good news in a, a specific story uh, that we believe is the true story of the world. So we looked at that last week, um, sort of centered around this quote. And I hope that uh, this becomes a very familiar sort of concept to you, not just the quote itself. 
But this is a great philosopher of the last century, Alistair McIntyre, who said, I can only the answer the question, what am I to do? Ethics, uh, uh, sort of behavioral, who am I to be, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question, in other words, the more important question, of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And so we said that life makes sense when we have a story that we're living from and when how we're called to behave makes sense because it makes sense within that story, okay? So that's kind of how we frame this whole thing is we live in a moment where we have a lot of, this is how you should live and this is what's right and this is what's wrong, a lot of shouting at each other without necessarily um, any kind of story that provides a foundation from which those demands make sense. In fact, we're in a cultural moment that's very suspicious of there being a story of the world. And yet the alternate to no story is we are the mere uh, result of time plus energy plus chance smashing together in space that was once nothing and now is something. And hopefully you can, and one day the stars will burn out and we'll all be gone and human history will have been meaningless. Hopefully you can understand how that leads to a very different, reasonable, logical conclusion of, well, then how should I live than the kind of story that we as followers of Jesus believe to be true about the world. And so if that was a lot, we talked about that for 45 minutes last week. So I'll, <laughs> I'll direct you to that. I uh, can't re-preach that sermon. But out of that, what we said is that that first core identity of gospel centered is very important because it makes sense of the other values that we have. Core identities is the word that we've, maybe you've never even heard that term before. Think of this as values, right? Companies have values. Things that they say, these are non-negotiables of how we're gonna do what we're called to do. Um, that's how these core identities function. So this graphic, again, is hopefully something that you get used to if you're here at Jacobswell for any amount of time. Is, so these are our five core identities and gospel-centered is the one from which the other four flow that the other four are things that we value because we believe that they're deeply rooted in that gospel story, that they flow from that gospel, that prior story of the gospel. Does that make sense? And so, um, so in, they're here in order. We're going to skip forward to, to the third one here, life and multi-ethnic community today, because we're going to take our time with Thoughtfully Engaged over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about evangelism, which is a huge emphasis for our church this year. We're going to talk about politics. Um, but today, we're going to talk about this one of life in multi-ethnic community. And this is something that our church has valued. It's part of the identity that we've wanted to have literally from day one as a church. Uh, over 15 years ago now. And so, um, so I know that this is something that's, that's gotten more currency over the last three or four years in the midst of COVID, all of that unrest. I just feel like it's important to say not to, I think it's great that the church is having more of these conversations, but this is something that massively predates that, all of that for us as a community. This is a value that we have always held as a church particularly, and I'll talk more about this in a second, but particularly because of where we are, this we believe um, needed to be one of the most deeply held things about who we were as a church and how we were gonna non-negotiably go about doing things. One of the reasons why we revisit these every year is because um, sometimes the things we most deeply value if, even, even though we deeply value them, if we don't talk about them again and again, they get lost and begin to be assumed. And once something is assumed and not actually tended to and talked about and guarded and all of those kinds of things, even the most deeply held things, you can look around and go, why are we not doing that the way that we committed to doing that? And it's, well, it's because that value became assumed. And this one in particular, to me, I, I think is uh, particularly resonant with that idea because I think it's very easy to, to walk into a church like ours and look around and see that there's um, certainly diversity in this room and to think, well, yeah, I mean, that's because we're in Middlesex County, New Jersey, and so you, you put a sign out for a church and this is what you're going to end up with. And I can just tell you, having been here for those 15, 16 years, um, that this is not a mistake. And this was also not the result of just sort of 
naturally how the church grew is this took tending to. This took talking about. This took really difficult um, conversations. This took mistakes we made along the way. This took hurt endured by certain people when we didn't do this well. This took misunderstanding and then hopefully a little bit more understanding. It takes constant tending to to continue to have a church that reflects the beautiful, beautiful diversity of the particular region and context where we are. And so we are going to talk about this. <laughs> We're going to talk about it today. Um, it's also something that we talk about uh, if you're doing the 101s, that social discipleship 101, this will be a huge emphasis of what you will talk about there. If you go through our leader training, this is a huge topic that we talk through is what does it mean to lead in a multi-ethnic, multicultural church? Because there's certain challenges to that, but there's also certain beautiful opportunities to that. And so this is something that pervades a lot of what we do and does end up, it should end up, feeling like a non-negotiable how of what it means to be a part of our community here, right? And I also feel the need to say, there is no sense in which we have arrived. Like, want to see a multi-ethnic church that's functioning perfectly? <laughs> Welcome to the perfect example, right? Like, again, this needs this constant conversation tending to hard thing. We'll talk about what actually multi-ethnic community requires from the scriptures, in, in this message. But I just feel like at the beginning, I want you to hear, also to hear the distinction between we don't just want to be diverse. Diversity is great. Diversity is beautiful. Diversity is necessary. Diversity has currency in our cultural moment. But there is a massive difference between being a diverse church and being a church um, that's actually reconciled yeah. between ethnic groups, between cultures, um, that's doing some of the things that we'll talk about today, that there is a difference there. And we're not merely aiming at diversity. Oh, good, we reached some sort of quotas and you know the percentages work or something. God, help us if that's what we're after. But no, we're after actually engaging together and saying, no, there's actually deep work that God wants us to do with and for one another within the multi-ethnic diversity of the church. Um, and not just, oh, good, we all sit together on Sunday. All right, with that, um, I want to do something similar to what I did last week where I want to show you sort of the 30,000-foot view of this biblically, and then I want to get a little bit more specific um, in terms of what this looks like in a local community like ours. And so huge flyover biblically, but this is basically how we would track this through the scriptures. Genesis 1, there's something called the cultural mandate. You might remember this. God makes Adam and Eve, and he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that, um, uh, people understand that to be partially about go have kids and spread people onto the four corners, but also biblically, this idea of being fruitful and scattering over the face of the earth is also about cultural production. It's also about um, go and be co-creators with the Creator, capital C, and make something of the raw material of this world that I'm giving you. And as Brenda Salter McNeil, who's one of the great theologians and, and voices on all of this that, um, that we've leaned into over the years, as, as she points out in some of her work, this right from the beginning therefore assumes that there would be cultural diversity in creation. Why? Because to say scatter over the face of the earth, if you go to Russian Siberia, or if you go to uh, South American rainforest, there's going to be differences in terms of what kind of, let's just start with probably the most obvious cultural thing that's wafting into this room right now, right? You're going to have different kinds of foods that you eat, right? But you're also going to have different kinds of clothing. And as we know, we human beings are, are art makers, and so you're going to have different kinds of art. So right at the beginning by saying, I don't want you all to stay in one place, God is, is, is weaving into the very fabric of his purposes for creation a kind of cultural difference and diversity. It's right there at the beginning. Of course, this story doesn't go well in any number of ways, but talking about this specific topic, the real, the real bottoming out of God's call to, to spread over the face of the earth, to, to, to not just gather as one people, is that after humanity falls, we end up with this thing called the Tower of Babel. 
And again, you might not be familiar with the scriptures, but maybe you know this story. What does humanity do? We don't scatter over the face of the earth. They all end up in one city, in one group, and they say, maybe we have enough here. Maybe we have enough here um, that we actually don't need God. And maybe we can build something and storm heaven's gates and bust in and actually displace God from his throne. That's like one of the low points of the human story, right? From scatter to the four corners of the earth, be distinct and different, go and create. We say, ah, we want to stay here. We want to be one thing and we want to go up and get further and more like God. This is, this is, this is a massive low point in the story of God's intentions for creation, It literally says in the story of the Tower of Babel, now this people had one language, they were one city, they were one people, and when they articulate why they're building this tower, they literally say, let's build a tower lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. They say, no, we we all want want to be like with like. And by the way, part of what's embedded in this story is you don't build a tower in ancient times without some people being subjugated and forced to build that tower. So right here, also embedded in this story, is the subjugation, however this went on, but the oppression of certain people to say, hey, we're going to need a tower and, and you need to go build it, right? Think of the Egyptian pyramids, some of the images you have of that, some of Israel's story with how things were built back in those days. So this is not good. Out of that not goodness, literally the very next chapter in Genesis God shows up to this guy, Abraham, who seems like, why did God choose Abraham? God seems to have chose Abraham precisely because of how random he was. He was a moon worshiper in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's beca- precisely because of how unlikely he was to be the one that was chosen for the task that God now gives him, that he was chosen. God shows up to him and he says, hey, Abraham, I need you to leave everything you've ever known do you hear some of, the, some of the cultural mandate in that? I need you to leave. I need you to go from what's familiar and I need you to do something new in a new place and the, the family that's created around you will one day be a blessing to all the nations. Through you, through one family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, even though it's gotten so bad with the Tower of Babel, God has an answer to it. Why? We don't know why other than the reason that always we seem to get back to with why God does things because of his grace, because of his mercy, and because of his love for humanity. He says, it's gotten this bad. I'm going to choose one man and one family to actually be a blessing to those who are rebelling against me by trying to be like with like. And so he works through this family. Flash forward in the story. Next slide. And now Jesus comes onto the scene and Jesus is here to fulfill precisely what God had promised to Abraham. Jesus is part of that family of Abraham, generations and generations later. He's part of the the family of Israel. He's a son of that promise, and he comes to be that blessing to all the nations, such that when he does what he does, dying on a cross for the sins, not just of one family, not just of one people group, not just of one ethnicity, but literally for God so loved the world, right? Like the whole world, Jesus comes and dies and takes that upon himself. Jesus's last words to his disciples are what? Go therefore and, and announce this good news to who? Make disciples of all nations, right? Now, from that oneness, God says, we're going to spread this news and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then this is the story that we see unfold. Acts 2 is the next major scene in this. This is commonly known as Pentecost. This is one of the Jewish festivals. It's a really interesting festival. Think of it like the Olympics. I think it's the most helpful way to think of it. It's when All of the people of Israel come to Jerusalem, but this is the one festival where they bring everyone who's in their household. So anyone who works for them, any of of the the slaves in their midst. So this is the the largest multinational gathering that we're aware of literally in the ancient world is Pentecost. And into that, after Christ has resurrected, the Holy Spirit shows up and we're told that in many languages, 
One message of the gospel goes forth and many people from all these different nations are saved. And so there's all this scholarly discussion of, is this an undoing of the Tower of Babel? It, there's, there's enough there that it's kind of unmistakable that something's going on there. Whereas Babel was one nation, one language, one people group. And, and what's the result? That's probably the part that I shouldn't have skipped. What's the result of Babel? God, God confuses their languages and spreads them, scatters them to the four corners of the earth. It's like he accelerates the plan that he had from the beginning in Genesis 1. He's like, if y'all ain't going to scatter, I'm going to scatter you. And I'm going to give you different languages. And I'm going to give you different cultures. And, and I'll do the work in sort of the snap of a finger. This does seem to be, in some sense, an answer, a redeeming of that scattering. Now, all the people are brought together. And in those many languages, they hear this one message of salvation. Such that, and I'm going to skip Acts 11 for now, such that the final picture that we have, which Rach read for us this morning, the final picture that we have in Revelation, did you read for us? You did read for us. In Revelation 7 is when all of human history comes to a close, when the reign and rule of God is applied to the four corners of the earth, when redemption is... is um, is, is basically consummated and complete both within us and in the created order. The picture that we get is after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in robes, palm branches in their hands, crying out and praising God. That's where this whole story is headed. When you think about it, John, who's receiving this revelation at the end, here's one really important thing to understand about that picture in Revelation 7. We do not all become the same in the end. There is not this sort of um, melting pot weird thing that happens in the end such that culture and language even no longer matter as though those are bad things that now are done away with when redemption is applied to the four corners of the earth. Because how would John know that it was people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, if those people didn't look somehow distinct from one another, weren't actually praising God in different languages, right? Like that image says that there's an essential goodness about cultural difference about ethnic distinctiveness, that even in the new heavens and the new earth, I would say maybe especially in the new heavens and the new earth, will reach its full and most beautiful expression, not through sameness, but through that difference. Amen. And yet, notice this. What is the unity of that people, though? What is the oneness? It's not cultural and ethnic oneness. What is it? A oneness of worship. They're all worshiping the same God. Somehow he's like, and it's all directed that way. It's all directed to the throne, right? Because the greatest goodness that they share is the Christ who brought them together. And so if that's the final picture, if that's the ideal final picture, then we shouldn't be uh, surprised that as the story of the gospel goes forth into the world, one of the primary ways that the people of God stand out, both in the ancient world and in every culture this goes into, is in the gospel's ability to bring together disparate people groups and ethnicities, to bring reconciliation between peoples. What Rachel read for us is Ephesians 2, which we won't go through, which we've preached on a bunch here, but the essential structure of Ephesians 2. Now, this is the letter that one of the early Christian missionaries, teachers that we'll talk about in a second, Paul writes to a church in Ephesus, one of the most beautiful letters in the ancient world, and he's describing the implications of what Jesus has done. 
And the first half of Ephesians 2 is the more famous and known part, if you've been around church for any amount of time. It has this beautiful stuff about, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. This is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. Surely the, or, or only the result of grace so that no one can boast and say, I've earned God's favor. No, no, no. We are all desperately in need at the feet of Jesus. And we say, amen, hallelujah to, to the first half of Ephesians 2. The second half of Ephesians 2 then says, but what's happened between you and God vertically has massive implications for the horizontal relationships in your life. That it's meant to impact how we actually relate one to another. And what Paul particularly picks up in the passage that Rachel read is how not just between individuals there's going to be reconciliation, but how especially between Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, who are these disparate groups at odds for any number of reasons, how those were going to be brought together. And how the world would go, that's different. We've never seen anything like that. We've never seen these people together in the same place with a, with a shared unity. But here's, here's what the ideal is, right? Is as people understand, why are the Jews and Gentiles together? What is their unity around? You go and you say, they're, they're still very much Jews. They're still very much Gentiles. But what's bringing them together is that one, is the one that they're worshiping. You see, their unity is around the worship of Jesus. And you go, oh, okay, so there's something unique about him in his ability to bring together these kind of people groups, right? And this brings Jesus glory, literally, right? Like, okay, now for some of you, you're like, I've heard this many times, right? Like if you've been at Jacob's Well, you've heard that part articulated many times. And hopefully you would say yes and amen to that vision of what God is doing in the world. I'll just add one other thing. Think of the story that our church gets its name from, right? Jacob's well. How do we tell that story? Jesus goes to this place called Samaria where there was all this cultural, ethnic, historical uh, animosity between the particular people group that Jesus is coming from and where this Samaritan woman comes from. And Jesus breaks that barrier, encounters her in a life-changing way. Arthur actually pointed this out to me. Don't forget that when Jesus gives that great commission and he says, therefore, go into all the world, what does he say? He says, he says, you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea. What's next? And Samaria. And you can almost picture the disciples going like, ah, I wish we could have skipped that one, right? Like Judea and Jerusalem, we'll skip over Samaria and then we'll go into the Roman world, right? Like, no, you're going to go, you've got to go through Samaria the same way that I went through Samaria, right? And I think that one of the things that the church needs to ask, especially in a place and context like ours, is what are the Samarias that we go, ugh, that's going to be hard for us. That's going to slow us down a little bit as a church. Ooh, that's, that's different and unfamiliar to me. Ooh, there's ethnic, there's cultural difference there. There's even history that might come between us. And like Jesus in that divine imperative that said, and he had to pass through Samaria, we want to be a church that says, no, we have to pass through Samaria. We're not going to lay those things aside just because we can go faster if we adopted the homogeneous unit principle, right? Like that means very little to some of you, but that's literally a church growth strategy is you find a demographic and you, and you lean into that demographic and then you can go really fast because everybody's gonna like everything you do. And you, get to, and you get to sing one type of worship and you get to do one type of discipleship and you read all the same books and you have all the same sources and everybody understands everybody and oh, it's frictionless, right? And we go, sounds really nice but it doesn't sound like the New Testament. Yeah. Okay, all that sounds great, right? Like, yeah, let's be a multi-ethnic church. This gets hard on the ground, okay? Like there have been tears um, shed. There's been real hurt in a community like ours, and there was real hurt from the beginning as the church tried to figure this out. So let's look at that now. This is Acts 11. This is such a good passage. So helpful for a community like ours. Okay. Um, we are, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church is starting to be established. Um, what precedes this immediately, what's immediately before this is the stoning of Stephen, um, who's the first martyr. So this is a Jewish man who spoke out against the Jewish authorities. Um, they've stoned him to death now. So this is like an intense moment for the early church. Here's, here's 
how this account starts. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now, this is really interesting. I don't know if I have the guts to say this, but many commentators point out that the language that's used here suggests that this might be similar in terms of God using something awful to actually create something that he's asked of them by his own sort of like divine providence. What am I getting at? The church at this time has stayed in Jerusalem. They're almost exclusively meeting in Jerusalem. They're not going into all the world. They haven't even really made it out of Jerusalem into the rest of Judea, let alone Samaria into the ends of the earth. And one thing that scholars say is the scattered language is very noticeable. It's almost as if God says, okay, I'm going to use this horrible thing that happened, this brother that you watch get stoned to death, but I am going to accomplish something through it. Which, by the way, this is how God works. He takes a horrible thing that, that is not his will. He didn't have Stephen stoned to death, but he weaves it for his purposes. And he says, y'all ain't scattered yet. This is your opportunity to scatter. Like, you need to get out of Jerusalem. It's actually a very reasonable thing they do, but you get the sense that this is almost something that God himself um, sort of pushed them out of. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus. You guys love maps? I got you one. Here we go, Brian. Yeah. Boom, a map. Okay, okay. so this is, uh, this is the Mediterranean Sea. So if you zoom out, right, you have Africa down here. You have uh, Europe up here. This is what we know as Turkey um, today. And so this is the Mediterranean Sea. So here's uh, what we think of as the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, all of that, right? Okay, so this is where all the events of Jesus' life happen. Now they're headed. Now this persecution has happened. They're like, we got to get out of here. So they go northward is where they're heading. And eventually they'll end up here. That says Antioch, okay? That's where they're headed. Okay, back to the passage. We'll go back to the map. Don't worry. Okay, um, so they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So they're going up north, okay? And then Cyprus is that island. So some of them go out to the island. Some of them are going up north. Check this out. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, why are they only speaking the word? This is talking about they're, they're preaching the gospel. Why are they only talking to Jews? Who said it? Same. Somebody said same, right? Because this is what you do. Right? You go into a new city, you go into wherever, you go to Paris, and you're sitting at a little cafe, right? and somebody's speaking English next to you, you're probably going to talk to that person. And you're going to go, oh my gosh, are you from America? Oh my God. Right? And, and there's like this relief. right? These aren't bad people. These aren't racist people. This isn't the worst thing that's ever happened. But it's not what Jesus called them to. Okay? <laughs> like, it's not exactly what Jesus called them to, but it's a very reasonable human thing to do. They're talking to their own. They speak the language. They know their culture, right? When they go to a restaurant, they're going to eat the same food. They're not going to order the pork, that whole deal, right? Okay, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Go back to the map. Where's Cyprus and Cyrene? Cyprus out here, so not part of here, and Cyrene's all the way over there. So somehow along the way, this group that's left Jerusalem has picked up people from there and there. This is North Africa, okay? These are probably non-Jewish ethnically people. Go back. Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. It's fascinating. Preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. You know what that means? That's not a throwaway line. The hand of the Lord, especially in the book of Acts, it's like, um, well, really throughout the scriptures. For instance, when Israel is taken out of Egypt, it says, the hand of the Lord stretched forth and rescued his people. The hand of the Lord is like, yo, this is when like God, God intervenes the way we wish he would more frequently in our life. Like, this is a God thing. Like, God is clearly doing something. And this says, nothing wrong with speaking only to Jews, but when these some of them, who I feel like are some of the heroes of church history, whose names we'll never know, when some of them start talking to non-Jewish people, to Hellenists in these regions, the hand of the Lord is with them. It's like Jesus has been waiting. He goes, oh, they get it. Okay, I'll go and do some stuff as they go forward. And a great number who believe turn to the Lord. This is great, right? Non-Jewish people were scattering. The Great Commission is going forth. Verse 22, dun, dun, dun. The report of this came, no, 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 go back. I did the dun, dun, dun. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. This is dun-dun-dun. Why? 
Because the church in Jerusalem is the center of power. The church in Jerusalem is almost exclusively Jewish people. Church in Jerusalem might not love that this is now going out beyond the ethnic sameness that they've gotten comfortable with. That's honestly made a fledgling Christian movement fairly frictionless to this point. Little things here and there, but no massive conflicts because they're all working from a very similar cultural playbook, okay? Part of this came to the ears, what's gonna happen? Next. This is another great moment in church history. They decide to send Barnabas of all people. So they send Barnabas to Antioch which is like, oh, good, because oh, Barnabas is a total sweetheart, okay? Like, that's what we know about Barnabas. His name is almost certainly a nickname. It means son of encouragement. Um, this is probably something that he picked up in the early church, is they're like, oh, Barnabas is the best. You're just like a son of encouragement. It's like your dad is encouragement. You were just born to encourage, right? That's who this guy is. He was the right guy to send. They send him like, yo, go check this out. Make sure it's on the up and up. Okay, when he came and saw the grace of God, What does he go? He goes and identifies and he says, ooh, different people groups, different ethnicities coming together in the same church. This is a work of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Guys, this work takes an essential goodness. It takes the Holy Spirit and it takes a lot of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now this is nuts. Verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. (laughs) This is so good. Okay. You know who Saul is? Saul is the the guy who becomes Paul. Saul right now, um, in the story, Saul has been kicked off his heart. So Saul is this Jewish guy who, this Jewish scholar of scholars, brilliant, brilliant mind uh, in the Jewish world. He's uh, very zealous for the things of God. He's been going around and collecting up Christians um, and throwing them in jail. And because like, he's like, we've got to snuff this out. Like this isn't, this isn't what God would want. Okay, Jesus literally comes and kicks him off his horse. Do you know the story? And says, like, what are we doing here, bro? Like you're persecuting me. Like you're, you're actually against the purposes of God. Paul has the most radical conversion in the history of the world, really. Um, And what he does is like many of us, when we first come to faith, he gets very zealous about evangelism, right? And so the very last time that we saw Paul in Acts, let me see if I can find this. Okay, so check this out. This is in Acts 9, um, 26. This is Saul after his conversion. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were afraid of him. Why? So he goes to the center of power of the church to a bunch of Jewish people. Why are they scared of him? Because now these Jewish people are Christians and they're the type of people that Paul has been carrying off. They know this. They've gotten word of this. Now they're like, no, Saul's become a Christian. And just like you and I would be like, ah, isn't there another church? <laughs> like, isn't there somewhere else that he could go? They were afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. No kidding. But check it out. Who comes onto the scene? But Barnabas, our boy. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. He basically vouches for him. So he went in and out among them, that's Saul, at Jerusalem, preaching boldly. So they finally accept him in. Check this out. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And the brothers learned this. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Saul grows up Jewish, radically converted to Christianity. The very first thing he does in the city that he's at, he goes after the Hellenists. And he's like, you guys got to believe and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, we got to kill this dude, man. Like he is so much and he's messing up our political power and like he's too much. And so they're like, sneak him off to Tarsus. The gospel goes to Antioch. The first ethnic church is being formed or first multi-ethnic church is being formed. Hellenists are becoming Christians. Our guy Barnabas says, you know who a great pastor for this church would be? Saul, who's hiding in Tarsus because the Hellenists want to kill him. And he says, Hellenists are becoming Christians. They're going to love Saul as their pastor. (laughs) 
Why does he do this? I think he does this. One, because, because Saul is clearly showing himself to be someone who has zeal for these things, who probably has the strength and the fortitude to stand in, in all the conflict that's going to be here. I think he's doing this because he, he knows Saul needs this as much as the church needs it. Saul needs to see that the Hellenists, who the last time he saw them had rage in their eyes and were seeking to kill him, are now becoming Christians. Saul needs an experience of the multi-ethnic gospel in order for Saul to become who God wants him to be. All right, I'm going to stop it there. All right, now we jump to Galatians 2. <laughs> okay, this is where it gets interesting. Okay, so that all sounds great, doesn't it? Okay, Galatians 2. This is another letter written by now that Paul... Um, and he's going to tell you about how things are going at the church in Antioch, okay, the multi-ethnic church. Here, here's how things are going with that whole thing. Okay, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Okay, who's Cephas? Cephas is, is the character in the Gospels you, you know better as Peter, okay? Peter. Peter, oh, I want to preach all this, but Peter has had his own experience by God of this multi-ethnic gospel, of, of horizontal reconciliation resulting from his reconciliation with God through what Christ has done. Um, some of you might know the story. It gets really weird. Peter's on a roof, and he has this vision of all this pork and bacon coming down. You think I'm kidding. This is real. And he says, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. You know, like, this is, this is, a, this is a cultural necessity um, in order to please God. And Jesus, literally the voice of Jesus shows up, and he's like, no, nah, it ain't like that anymore. Like cultural barriers are coming down. Take up and eat. Enjoy it. And Peter's like, I don't know. And it happens three times. And then finally he has the bacon or whatever happens. Okay, as that's happening, there's this guy Cornelius, who's, who's a Greek uh, person of power, who's a military person, who has sent for Peter. Um, and so just as Peter's having this vision, he goes downstairs and someone's like, hey, Cornelius needs you. And Peter almost certainly has never been in a Greek home because it was, it was unclean and because of all the kosher laws and all that stuff. So he's like, oh. So Jesus immediately puts him to the test. Like, did you get the point of what just happened on the roof? Like, will you go to this guy's house? He goes to Cornelius's house and you can almost picture Peter kind of like, oh, like, am I allowed in here? And then he's like, <laughs> then Cornelius literally says to him like, I think God wanted me to send for you, so do you have anything to tell us? And Peter's like, ah, I'll tell you the gospel. And so he shares the gospel with them. And literally in that home, there is like a little mini Pentecost. Like the Spirit comes down. Um, they have this radical experience of the Holy Spirit, and they become Christians. And Peter goes, like, oh, okay. So all that stuff was real. I'm not going crazy. Is like that really was from God, Okay. That's Peter. He's had his own experience. He's the one who literally goes back to the Jerusalem church, literally goes back and says, guys, the Gentiles are coming in. They're becoming Christians. Like exactly what happened to us at Pentecost, I just watched it happen in like the center of Greek power. Like God, he, the language that he uses, he says, now I understand that God makes no distinction between peoples. He's like, this gospel is going to be a worldwide global gospel. It's going to be a multi-ethnic gospel. Peter's the one who brings that news and who makes that argument. And they go, all right. That same Peter, who's going by Cephas, almost certainly because that's the nickname. A lot of people going by nicknames. One of my favorite things about the early church. Um, who's going by this nickname that Jesus gave him, the stone. That's what Cephas literally means. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... That's the main guy. That's like the lead pastor back of the church in Jerusalem. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, when these old Jewish friends of his from his old church in Jerusalem, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He drew back and separated himself. That is literal Old Testament language for what God asked his people, Israel, to do when they were among the nations is to draw back and separate and be distinct from them. It's, it's, it's Acts way of saying, Peter goes back to the old playbook. He goes back to the old playbook. In spite of everything that he had experienced, when cultural sameness comes back into his life, he, he drifts back into it. He drifts back and goes, no, 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 those, those Gentiles, no, yeah, they're the worst, right? Like, it's us. We're the real people of God. 
fearing the circumcision party. I want to make a joke about the circumcision party, but I won't. Um, what a, what a, what a name. Okay, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Check this out. So that even, no, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, our guy, our sweetheart. He messes. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What he's saying is, Peter, by your actions, you're saying to these Gentiles, well, the real Christians are Jews. Well, we're the ones who really get it right. And he says, bro, you've been living like one of them. Now you're going to make them put on this cultural guard. You're going to make them lose the distinctiveness of who they are ethnically and culturally, and ask them to essentially become Jewish, that's not the gospel. I want you to hear what he's saying here. He's saying that multi-ethnic reconciliation is not a nice-to-have for the church. It's not a church growth strategy. It's not a a nice thing to put on our brochures. It's um, It's not a nice option. He says... What Peter was doing was not in step with the truth of the gospel, yo. It was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, it's dancing to a different song. It's responding to a different story about what God is doing in the world, right? Keep in step is literally a dancing image, right? And it's saying, you're not dancing to the gospel. You're dancing to something else. You're dancing to someone else's music when you're doing this stuff. What I want you to see is if there was ever a text that makes it very clear that what we're trying to do here needs constant tending to. Guys, you're talking about Peter, who had this radical experience of the multi-ethnic gospel, literally tailor-made to him, alone with Jesus, and he falls away from it. You have Barnabas, who vouched for Saul, for goodness sake. And you have Barnabas who went to that first, that same church and said, no, it's legit and God's active there. And yet he's drawn away into that. This is not something that just naturally happens. What naturally happens is drifting away from it. That's what's natural. What's supernatural is the tending to this and the work that it takes to continue pursuing reconciliation, and it takes some of what Paul did here, okay? Let me, let me give you three things that, that I think practically for us, multi-ethnic church requires. First, shared leadership, guys. There has to be a, a meaningful sharing of power, right? We're not, we're not trying to do tokenism here. We're not trying to have the right mix of people uh, on stage just to have the right mix of people on stage so that you go, wow, very, you know, very enlightened or whatever, right? Like we want to have people who actually have meaningful input into this church and meaningful decision-making power in order to to do the next thing, which is confrontational, loving truth-telling, which is what Paul does for Peter here. One of the coolest things that's said about the church at Antioch, you can look at this at the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 13, is it names their leaders and it is a wild bunch. It's a guy who uh, grew up in the same household as Herod, who was like an oppressor of the Jewish people. It's Paul, it's Barnabas, who themselves are Jewish. It's a guy whose name literally means the black one. You can look it up. Like this is almost certainly someone from further south into Africa. There's a Cyrene, there's a North African. This is what leadership of the church at Antioch looks like. That's what it's gotta look like if we're actually gonna do this work, which is why, yes, we put some thought into who leaders are. It's not the sole criteria. Again, we're not doing weirdo tokenism, trying to reach quotas here, but there has to be a sense of shared power. I, I don't know if you can tell, I am a white man, right? (laughs) Like I should not be the one making decisions about what all of the different, all of what's represented here needs or prefers or all of that. You don't want me making those calls, okay? Now, some of you do, white people, right? Like some of you do. But like, I need to understand, white people, can I talk to you for a second? (laughs) White people, we need to understand that we have a cultural distinctiveness. This is one of the things that being white in America uh, does, is it makes you blind to the fact that we have a way of doing things. We do. Now, is it evil and wicked, right? Like, I don't hate the fact that I'm white. 
you're not going to be asked to hate the fact that you're white here. That's, that's anathema to the gospel. That's, that's exactly what Peter and, and was doing, right? Was calling people out. I'm not trying to make it a four-letter word. I'm just saying, white people, we got some work to do because we've been blind to the distinctiveness and that we do have a way of doing things, right? You'll do some of that work in discipleship course, right? And that's really important in a church that still is majority white because our drift will tend to be toward a certain way of doing things that someone like me thinks, well, this is just the way you do things without realizing, well, no, that actually does have a cultural ethnic distinctiveness to it. Now, there's all sorts of nuance in there because one of the things that we're not trying to do is make you your ethnicity and that's it, right? Like God deals with individuals. So you have your own unique story. You have your own mix of ethnic cultural background. You have your own story. Some of you are first generation, second generation immigrants, right? Like we're not trying to narrow people into groups and say, well, this is the way that this group is. This is the way that this group is. But representation matters and power sharing matters. You share leadership. You need to do this confrontational, loving, truth-telling. This is something that we try and embody at our staff table, at our elder table. Uh, when we do leader training and all that, like we need to speak. We need to know that you can say things and say, yeah, like this, this feels out of step to me. But we also need joyful celebration, right? Like we also need to remember that what our unity is based around is our loving, joyful worship of Jesus. And so we party here intentionally. We do community meal. Community meal is not just a nice little thing um, that we like think is fun to eat food together. It is part of us joyfully celebrating the diversity of culture that's present here and centering ourselves around that and going, isn't that beautiful and great and wonderful, right? Here's the last thing I'll say. Go back to Acts 11. I realize we're late and we all want to eat. It says, right, Ultimately, if that's what multi-ethnic community requires, you know what multi-ethnic community makes? And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It makes Christians. People look in on what's happening at the church in Antioch, and they go, what in the world is that? And they say, well, they talk a lot about this person, Jesus. And they go, I guess we'll call him Jesus, people. That's what we're after. We're doing this to glorify Jesus in this particular place. Middlesex County is like the fourth most diverse county in the entire country by certain measures. You know what the second most diverse township in all of New Jersey, including all of the urban spaces is? North Brunswick, yo, isn't that crazy? Like, we believe that if we can be in a place like this and show people something different where people say, those type of people don't normally do stuff together. Why are you in that strange building with that strange name together? And we go, well, honestly, what we do is we come together around worship of Jesus. They go, tell me about this Jesus. This is about them, not about us. Not about Jacob's well becoming something, becoming some model. And this is about Jesus, guys. And it's about us being formed because you know what being with people who are culturally different than you does? It makes you see God in new ways. It makes you see your own need to be more like Christ in new and different ways than you would if you just stayed with sameness your whole life and you clapped for each other and said, yes, that's what good people like us believe. No, get with some difference and let that challenge come into your life. And man, you will experience riches and depth of Jesus and his formation in your life that you can't imagine. That's what we're after, okay? Because multi-ethnic community requires a lot, but what it makes is really great Christians who love Jesus, and that's why we're doing this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this incredible hope and call. Um, God, even as we celebrate in just a minute here uh, together with this delicious food that's waiting for us, God, I pray that we would continue to be vigilant in this, not for our glory, Lord, but for yours, for your glory, Lord Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.